wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die for i have found your deeds i have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my god you're not done yet remember therefore what you have received and heard and keep it and repent if therefore you will wake up if you will wake up i will come like a like a thief and you will not know at the hour i will come upon you But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord's message to these churches is wake up. It's wake up, but apparently they keep hitting the snooze alarm, which is the reason for the picture up there. Boy, am I good at that. That illustration speaks to me. How many times will the Lord have to woo, have to speak before I awake, before I take to heart what it is that he wants, and what he wants is to turn our hearts back towards his, because if that's not the posture of our hearts, whatever we're facing us, whatever we're facing our, our hearts towards is cheating us from that which is better. So he starts with both a commendation and a caution. I hope you heard all the ways that he complimented specifically the church at Thyatira for their faith, for their service, for their perseverance, for the fact that their deeds of late even exceed the deeds that they had at first. Now, other churches had started well and faded, but, but not this church. This church had a momentum that was still surging through the church there in Thyatira. It was an industrious church because perhaps they were industrious people. They lived in such a city. Thyatira was known for its guilds, for all of its uh, uh, trade guilds. They, they, they dyed wool and they uh, had pottery guilds. There's a reference to a, a pot being, being broken there. It was a guild city that had, had much to produce. It was an industrious city. It was, a, it was a, a thriving commercial place because they produced so much. But if you lived in Thyatira and you were one of these tradespeople... Each of these tradespeople had a, uh, a club. This guild would get together, and they were dedicated to the raising up of their particular uh, craft, whatever it was, the promotion of it, and also just to the mutual pleasure of all who were a part of it. And, and so if you were a part of this professional club, it was just expected for you to go to uh, the events, Right? And the events, and they didn't have country clubs. What they had was temples to pagan gods. So often what would happen is one of the heads of the guilds would talk that particular temple into hosting it. And all the meat that had been sacrificed and sacrifices to that god would become the banquet fair for the guilds gathering. And at that guilds gathering, they would eat the meat, and they would have their party, and they would raise up their cause, whatever it was. And it was also usually a place, because these were not people that had Judeo-Christian morals in order to uh, guard their behavior. It was just kind of the momentum of the night that ended up in all kinds of immorality. 
You don't have to have gone to college to kind of understand where that's going, do you? Do you get what I'm saying? And these Christians were a part of those kinds of celebrations. And I'm sure that many of them went and participated because they recognized that if they did not participate, they were committing commercial suicide. Imagine being the only tanner in town, not a part of that group. You would soon be run out of town. Many of you have businesses. You understand what it is to uh, be the little guy when somebody else has the monopoly, right? Same kind of dynamics there. And so because of that, many Christians felt like they had, in order to survive commercially, they had to be a part of whatever was going on. They couldn't distance themselves from that crowd. But in doing so, in joining that party, often they would forget who they were, whose they were, and where they were going. See, it makes a real difference how we are in this world, but not of it. And, and one of the, the keys to living in that kind of environment is always keeping focus before you what your mission in this world is. If your mission in this world is to glorify Christ and draw others to that great relationship that they can have with him, you can live out that mission in most every dark place this world has to offer. If you stay on mission. But if you forget whose you are and why you're there, right, it's very easy to just go with the flow and become like what you're surrounded with, to be influenced rather than being an influencer. Jezebel is mentioned there. Do you remember Jezebel? Man, she was a piece of work. You'll find find her story in in the Kings. And uh, she was actually a a, a queen. She became the queen of of one of uh, Israel's kings, Ahab, I think it was. And, uh, but, but she was from Sidon. And there they didn't worship Jehovah. They worshiped a false god called Baal or Baal or however you want to say it. And uh, so when she came to Israel, she brought all that Baal worship with her. And she was quite charming. She, she didn't say that she wanted, up front at least, she didn't say that she wanted Baal worship to displace the worship of the one true God. She just wanted to add to it. You know, supplement. Give that old Jehovah stuff a little spark of something new. And then what happened was all the ball worship stuff started to proliferate. And Jesus taught us that just like, oh, what was his name? Like, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, Bob Dylan, yes. It might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, Bob Dylan didn't first say that. Jesus did. And he said, you can't have two masters, not really. Because if you try to accommodate two masters, one's going to always displace the other, right? And, and, and so this is his reason for saying you can't serve God and money. If you want to ser- serve both of those, there's going to come conflicts in there, and you're going to have to choose, right? 
Thyatirans need to hear that. Because they had brought the Jezebel lie that you, you can maintain your integrity as a Christian and embrace everything. You, you can forget that you, the fact that you were born into a world at war between darkness and light. And God has called you to be an agent of light. You can forget that you're not only your masters, but you're sent here by your master on a mission. And that had grown fuzzy for the Thyatirans. They were, they seemed to be just going along to get along. And in doing so, though they may not have actually brought it to a conscious place of clarity, they were actually choosing commercial success over fidelity to God. And that's a good way to end up with neither. That was his message of warning to the Thyatirans. Be clear about your master. Don't go fuzzy about your mission. Remember who you are and whose you are and where you're going, wherever you go. Sardis had a different sort of challenge. Sardis was a very, very wealthy city. In today's parlance, we would say Sardis was old money. I had a friend down in Houston. He was from South Georgia, and he had a way of always speaking the truth, even when it was not appropriate. And I was at a, the first church there in Houston, 12,000 members, very well-to-do, old money, oil, holdings, all the way back to Sam Houston had ties, you know, in, in, in that particular church. And uh, a little old lady came in one day, you know, and we were standing outside, and he was one of my fellow ministers. We were standing outside in the vestibule, and she, she comes by to find her seat a little bit late, and she was a woman of such prominence that she had a place to sit. And, and she was coming by, and she had all, all of her festive baubles for the Christmas season for coat. Diamonds everywhere, you know, just, and and she walked by to her seat, and Charles leaned forward and said, you can't hide money. (laughs) That's not true. You really can. But it's interesting how sometimes our material wealth can come to be that which we take comfort in, that we take refuge in, that we really start claiming in ways, if we're not careful, if we don't look at the integrity of our own heart very carefully, that we can claim our bank accounts as our security, our 501Ks as our comfort, or whatever those things are called, those retirement accounts, those Roth IRAs, I don't know what... I've got a lot of those. Um, and and what, what Jesus is saying here is, don't kid yourself because you're not kidding me. I, I, I'm the one with the burning eyes. See, I see it all. I, I, I cut through all the fog. And, and if you're taking comfort in a, in a foggy moment now, know that there is coming a day where all that fog's going to be wiped away with perfect clarity before him.
I, I, I am the one who knows hearts, he says. Did you catch that? And he called, he called his faithful in Thyatira the, my bondservants. You know, a, a bondservant is not just someone who is stuck in being a servant. Or, that, that is someone who willingly chooses to give their lives in service to their master. Bond servants are bonded. They, they, they sometimes wore an earring or they, they had something that they wore that identified themselves as the lifelong bond servant to their master. Je- Jesus says, if you walk, I think this is what he's saying. If you walk through this life ashamed that you belong to me, you either need to pay attention to how you're walking or where you're walking because something's out of line. But to my bondservants, to those who continue in mission, who, who see each day as a new opportunity to, to live with God, to live for God, to do something, not just killing time, but shaping eternity, that, that's their perspective. And, and because of that, they have a different kind of clarity when, when they walk in those foggy places, in those places where the current of the world around them seems to be going in one direction, they, they can find the strength to walk countercurrently. That's a word. Sardis had lost their authenticity, not because of their prosperity, but because of their, their comfort. They'd gotten comfortable with the glories of yesterday or Theirs was a city that was decaying at the time. It had its glory days hundreds of years earlier. It had been attacked repeatedly because the city thought itself so secure that it didn't guard its borders. It was so high up on a hill with huge walls. And again and again, those who would conquer that city snuck up the hill and found places that were not repaired in the wall and got inside and conquered the city of Sardis. Sardis is asleep on the watch. And most of the time, I'm afraid that that could describe me. It could describe us. Are you aware that the church around the world is known to be praying for the persecution of the church in America? Not because they don't like us, not because they're jealous of us, because they love us. And they see us as a church that's asleep at the wheel. There's simply so much that we could be doing for our Christ and our King. And if we do it with the right heart, if we do it as unto Him, He renews our heart. It doesn't wear us out because we're trying to earn some merit badge with God. We're already his and he is ours and out of the joy of working in our father's business. Uh, we get to live out each day. Sardis's authenticity had fallen asleep. Their integrity had been subdued. Um, not because they were necessarily compromised somehow in heart, but because... Uh, They were missing the opportunities to really live for Christ. He says you have a reputation for being alive, though you're dead. And it's interesting that he ends the letter to Sardis 
not just with wake up, but remember someday I will profess you before our Father in heaven. It's real easy and almost comfortable sometimes to coast when we have a good reputation. But if that's what it causes us to do, if it causes us to fall asleep at the wheel and to become complacent, then we ought to pay attention to this letter because Jesus says we ought to far more care about what he has to say before our Father in heaven than what anyone else might have to say about us, even when it's good. Wake up. Don't hit the snooze button. Return to me. That's what God was about when he finally confronted Jezebel and her prophets of Baal. Do you remember that story? It eventually became so great that the prophets of Baal outnumbered the prophets of, of Yahweh by a massive majority, minority kind of representation. And in those days, Elijah was walking the earth. And do you remember what he did? He called all the prophets of Baal to a showdown. I think it was up, was it Mount Caramel, not Mount Nemo? It was some mountain. Carmel? Yeah, Carmel. You say Carmel, I say Caramel. Uh, this, this, this huge mountain, it's where everybody could see it. It, it, it was, it was, a, it was a, a citywide, regionwide event. And he called all these prophets, and Elijah's standing alone as the prophet of God, right? A prophet of Yahweh, against all these hundreds of, of, of Baal uh, prophets dancing around on that hill. And he said, I'll, 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 it's a matter of choice here. It's a matter of clarity about who is your master. That, that was Elijah's point. Either God, who claims to be the true God, is God, or not. And if that's the case, serve whatever else works for you. That was his point. But don't get lost in the fog of, well, it's got to be one or the other, but I just don't know. So he calls the prophets of Baal up there on the hill, and he says, this is what we're going to do. You're going to call on your God to light the fire under your sacrifice. And if he does, then we'll serve Baal, because he's God. But if he doesn't, I'm going to call on my God, the true God, Yahweh, to light the altar under the sacrifice. And uh, we'll just see whose God is God. Now, that's pretty gutsy. That's going out on a limb. But you know, God has a way of paying attention to who's out there where the fruit is. And so the ball guys dance around. He gives them all afternoon. They start at noon. They dance to the evening sacrifice, which I think would have been around six o'clock that evening. They, they dance for hours. They cut themselves, you know, because they feel like in a biblical reference to cutting. Who knew? They, they, they cut themselves in order to uh, feel more passionate about their entreaty to their God. I'm not going to go there, but, but, but they're showing out, and, and, and Elijah starts to have fun with it. Maybe you, ought to, maybe you ought to cry out a little louder. Maybe your God's on coffee break right now, because I, I don't see him doing much. And then in their exhaustion, finally the prophets of Baal stop, and, and uh, Elijah says, now, now I'm going to call on my God, but before I do, bring us some water. 
Bring us some water. Let's douse the sacrifice. Let's just not douse the sacrifice. Let's, let's douse all of the wood underneath it. Fill those three huge water bar, jars. Remember these water jars we talked about? Not, fill, fill them and pour three of them over the sacrifice. They do that. They stand back. and they Well, you, you're cooked now. And he said, no, do it again. Do it. They go and they fill up the water jars again. They pour it all around. All over the sacrifice. The wood's wet. It won't light. How are you going to light wet wood? Elijah says, ah, that's not enough. Go get some more water and fill up the moat around it so fire can't even get to it. And then Elijah simply turns his face towards heaven and says, God of heaven, vindicate your word. Show your people who the true God is that they might turn to you. That's the point. That they might turn to you. That they not be treated by lesser gods. This is the great jealousy that God has for his people. It's not jealousy of them. It's jealousy for them. It's a jealousy for his people that longs for them to not settle for anything less than who he is. And would be in their lives. And so it came down to a time of choice. And all of Israel is waiting. And fire from heaven, bolt of lightning, we don't know, came down. And it not only lit the fire, it absolutely evaporated everything in the trench. Not only did it light the wood, it, it, it obliterated it. Nothing but smoke, right? And then, then all of a sudden, the people of Israel have a moment of insight. Now everything's suddenly very clear. And they bow their knees to the one true God. And someday every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess. But God doesn't want to wait for that moment. You have a God who is a heavenly parent who longs to live with his children every moment. And so excuse him if he pushes a little hard sometimes. You're his kid. And again and again, his prevenient grace will chase you down until someday... Someday there's enough clarity that you, you can see what you've been missing out on. And he says to those who are overcomers, that he shall give us authority to rule, that he shall speak our name before our Father in heaven. We will get real recognition about a real integrity with us and the Lord rather than reputation about things that other people think about us. But we would hate to enlighten with the real truth. Real recognition, real affirmation, real authority. Because who, who, can, who can a master trust but one who has proven themselves, even in difficult times, to still be faithful when there was nothing in it for them but difficulty? If you can't heed, how are you going to lead? And so all this is completely rational once you see it from God's side. 
he, he wants to reward us. In some of the other letters, it says that we will be given a crown of life. A crown of life is given to he who overcomes. And if you read on in Revelation, there's this scene where Jesus finally presents himself at the, at the wedding feast. And all the children of God that are there in the heavens come to him wearing their crowns that he has rewarded them with already. And they take their crowns off of their heads. Their eternal crowns that will never fade. Treasures that could be theirs for all eternity. And willingly, speaking of us, Hopefully, those of us who are, we will in that moment think he's so worthy that we'll look around for something to worship him with, and all we will have is what he has given us. <laughs> Just like now. And we will take our crowns, and we will throw them at the feet of the only one in our midst who is truly worthy. The one whose goodness we have drank from all of our lives. When the junk food of the world tempted us for something less. He whose goodness that we have drawn from. He whose life has given us life. He whose strength that came to us in times of persecution. He who has walked with us and kept his promise. Lo, I am with you even until the end of the age if you'll just invite me in. He was a, a diamond miner. As the story goes, I think he was from South Africa. But he, he was English in his uh, derivation. And he inherited his father's mine when he was fairly young. And so he, he didn't know really the treasure that they had discovered when one of the largest diamonds that had ever come out of those mines had been unearthed and he now, as the owner of the mine, had to decide what to do with it. He sought counsel from others. And others said, well, the only person that can truly uh, appreciate this, and this is such a rare, huge, once-in-a-millennium kind of diamond, the, the only one that could really treasure this and keep it safe, cherish it for what it is, would be your queen. Let her make it part of her crown jewels and... There it will be safe. And there the whole world from time to time can enjoy it on display. And he thought, well, that, that's about the best idea I've heard. And so because others had told him, he, t- he took the, the diamond and he gave it to his queen. And she, of course, was overwhelmed by its great value. She, who had valued many gems through the years, understood how unique and precious it was, how absolutely magnanimous this gift was that he would give her. This treasure. She thanked him for it. The words were inadequate. And she went back to her throne. And he went back to his diamond mine. And he worked in the diamond mine year after year after year after year. And never in all the other gems that he saw. And all the other diamonds that were unearthed. Did he ever see one quite like that one he had first given. And so as he was nearing retirement, he planned a trip back to England. And he didn't let anyone know in advance. And when he he came in, he announced himself and asked for an audience with the queen, which, of course, he was laughed out of the room. And he said, no, you, you don't understand. And he told them the story and that he was that 
diamond mine owner. And they said, well, just a minute, sir, let, let us call for the queen. And she was much older now, but she remembered the name and she remembered the gift. And he came before her and she says, do you have a request of me? And he said, yes, if, if we could, could we bring that first gift that I brought you, that diamond, and, and just place it in our midst? And she thought, well, how can I refuse that? He gave it to me. And so she called for the diamond. And while they were delivering it to the room, to their audience, she, she grew nervous that maybe he now knew the great value of it and had different plans for it. And they put the diamond before them. And he walked over and he touched the diamond. And now he realized its great value. And he picked it up and he held it in his hands. And then he extended it to her. And he says, now, my queen, I know the true value of what I've given you. And if you would receive it again, it is my desire to give you this gift all over again. And he gave it back to his queen. At some point, maybe... You gave Christ your greatest treasure. At some point, you gave him yourself. And and maybe you've been walking through life and you realize that now there is no one quite like your Christ. Everything else is a veiled and empty imitation of what he really is, much less promises to be. Maybe you recognize that royalty more than you ever have. And maybe more than ever, if there is a crown that you will ever wear, you would want to lay it at his feet all over again. So this Christmas, what better Christmas gift than to give back to God that which he most treasures. You, his child, for whom he paid the ultimate sacrifice. Perhaps this morning, having heard the word to those churches, we recognize our own desire to give our lives to that royalty all over again. And in the next moments, we'll be singing a song together, as usually we do in the close of a worship service. But that doesn't mean that where you are singing this moment, it can't be a personal audience between you and your king. I'll let you tell him what you want to do with your treasure. Let's stand as we sing.